Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So the first question we have this week is definitely one that's getting everyone buzzing. This is one of my favorite questions to ask because it's on standard deviation and it puts a lot of people on pause when they're like, wait, I need to know about this. What's going on? So here's the question and I recommend you draw it out. So we have the average blood sugar of the patient with diabetes is going to be 200. Then we have an SD, which you should know is standard deviation of 25. How often is the patient's blood sugar greater? How often is the patient's blood sugar greater than 250? So with this question, you first need to think, okay, what do I know about standard deviation? And I would remember that it's that little bell curve. So I would draw out my bell curve. And then I want to look at the information that's telling me. The average blood sugar is 200. So I put my line right down the middle. So SD of zero is 200. Then it's telling me that the SD is 25. So that means between each of those vertical lines on my standard deviation chart is 25. So if I put a few more lines on my chart, and remember you don't need to be Picasso here, you're going to be telling yourself, okay, well, if the middle line of SD0 is 200, that means if I go one to the right to SD plus one, that's 225. If I go one to the left, SD minus one, that is 275. And let me remind myself what this question is asking. It's saying, okay, how often is the blood sugar greater than 250? So I want to find 250. So I'm saying, okay, well, 200 is SD0. 225 is SD plus 1, so SD plus 2 would be 225. And then I'm trying to say, okay, well, I'm looking for how, what percent of people have a blood sugar greater than 200. So if you've drawn out your chart right now, you should have your bell curve, you should have your line, you should have 200 in the middle, and then to the right, you should have 225 and 250. So even if you're not a standard deviation expert, which you do not need to be for this exam for sure, you should be able to tell that there's not a lot of room, right, greater than 250. So to the right, to the right of 250. So the next piece of information you need to know and layer onto this is the areas under the curve. And you do need to know not only how to plot like we just did, but also how to kind of find the different areas under the curve. So these are standard. So between SD of zero and SD of one, it's 34% under the curve. See, and it mirrors itself on the negative side. And what that tells us is that between SD negative one and SD plus one, 68% of the population is. 
So for our example, we're saying, well, 68% of people have a blood sugar between 175 and 225. And so then between SD of plus one and SD of plus two, this is gonna be 13.6%. And we're gonna mirror that between negative one and negative two. And remember, these are just standards. So if you're like, how am I getting these? These are standards, things you need to know. And then between SD of two and three, it's gonna be 2.5, I'm sorry, 2.1%. And so it's gonna be also 2.1% between SD negative um, two and negative three. And then after that, I have what's greater than SD three is just 0.1, so 0.1 on either side. So now I have my blood sugars, my blood sugars written out, and then I also have, and then I also have two, I also have as well the areas under, under the curve too. And so what I'm thinking about here is I'm saying, okay, well, what percent of people have blood sugars greater than 250? And so with this, I'm saying, okay, well, greater than two, my SD of two is 2.1% and 0.1%. So I do 2.1 plus 0.1. So that's telling me that only 2.2% of the population have a blood sugar greater than 250. And if you're listening along, I will post a graphic of this, which will kind of put it all out because I know it's hard to kind of imagine it just listening it too. Yep, because on the live and the podcast, You'll just hear me talking about it, um, too. And remember, all the questions that we're going over are posted to the page, so you can always go over them. And I do recommend you go over them before coming to class, too. And try to answer them. That's the best way to get out of it. So the next one is a question from me. So which of the following is a fat source, is an elemental or hydrolyzed nutrition support formula? So options we have here are we have medium chain triglycerides, soy lecithin, we have safflower oil, and very long chain triglycerides. So this is another question I like to ask my students because I find it's one that it's pretty easy to get wrong. Because when we're looking at this, we're often saying, okay, well, you know, a fat source, you know, and then we're saying, okay, well, it's hydrolyzed. And sometimes people get confused and they want to put soy lecithin. But remember, we're never, soy lecithin is an emulsifier. We're not using that as a fat source ever. Sometimes we use soybean oil, right, but not soy lecithin. And so we can take soy lecithin out. Safflower oil should look familiar to you, right, because it's the most polyunsaturated fat. If it's really, really long, right, it's going to be hard for my body to break down. And same with very long chain triglycerides. Those are going to be very long versus the medium chain triglycerides are going to be much shorter, right? They're 6 to 12 carbons. And so the answer here is the MCT, but you want to make sure that you know why it's the MCT. Because we're thinking patients who are on elemental formulas, this means that we have, right, monosaccharides. It means we're having 
mostly amino acids. It means we're having fatty acids. So what about MCT makes it really, really easy to digest? Well, this is bringing you back to your fat metabolism. Remember, check out the biochem class to learn more about that. But when we're thinking about our fat metabolism, we're thinking we have two main things that are helping us. We have bile, and then we also have lipase. And so the lipase is going to help to break down the fat globule, and the bile is going to help to emulsify it. So once we kind of break down the fat globule a little bit, it becomes a my cell. And I like to think my cells start the mission over the, over the epithelial cells. Then when we're in the epithelial cells, we convert to chylomicrons. And I think chylomicrons complete the mission. But then the chylomicron has to go through the lymph before it can get back into the blood. So lots of steps, lots of processes. First, MCTs look to the body as kind of water soluble. So because they're water soluble, they get to just slip right through um, our enterocytes and that phospholipid bilayer. So it doesn't require lipase. It doesn't require our bile. So it's really, really great for patients who are having any sort of fat malabsorption because it's very, very, um, it's very, very easy to pick up too. So next one, we have a question. We have a question from Caitlin. So it's, she's asking, you know, why would this answer be? So we have during an annual performance appraisal, a cook is very surprised at the number of work-related problems that the manager identifies. She has never had a poor evaluation before. What is most likely the cause? So we have... A, previous managers practice leniency. We have B, the manager has not done a good job communicating with the employee. C, discrimination on the part of the manager towards the cook. Or D, our job description has not been updated. So that's when the answer is B, and the student's saying, well, why? So we want to look at both these ones. So B is saying the manager has not done a good job of communicating with the employee, which Kind of fits because we're saying the cook is saying, like, I've never had a poor performance like appraisal before ever. Like, no one has ever told me that there's been any problems. Yet this manager's identifying many. In A, we're saying that the managers, the previous managers practiced leniency. And so leniency could work here if you don't have the cook saying, like, oh, like, but I've never been, you know, I've never done anything wrong because when we're thinking about leniency, this is a type of bias and error that you can see in performance reviews. This is when you've done something, you know, so like an example I could say is like if I had a dietetic intern and they were like really bad, but I was like, um, I'm just going to let you like pass through this rotation. Like, okay, we're going to overlook these things. But here we're not saying that things were overlooked. It's not saying that, like, despite being late every day, she's never, you know, the manager told her not to worry about it. So here it wouldn't be the leniency because the leniency means we're kind of overlooking something. But here we're not getting any information about it. Versus he, the cook here is saying, like, I've never, ever heard about this before. Like, no one has ever told me any of this. So that's why it makes it more feasible that, okay, the managers just haven't been saying anything. And that's why when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about our, um, 
when we're thinking about our, you know, types of bias in performance improvement and discipline, we want to make sure that we're kind of very, very early on documenting and kind of telling our employees about this. Because again, if you have so, if you're like, hey, Dina, you were late every single day this year. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah, like no one has ever said anything to this about this to me before. You know, that's why this employee is being very, very confused. Other vocab to make sure you know about here too is recency error, which would be that your recent performance is kind of overshadowing your typical performance. We also have here, we have our halo effect, which is when you're having kind of a glowing review, but just based on a personality, not on performance. Now, also can have central tendency, which is when you're kind of just ranking everyone in the middle, despite their actual performance. So next question I put up and no one wanted to try it. So which tells me it's a good question to ask um, if no one could answer it. So this is one that I, I ask um, my group when, for my monthly group students and in the situation, not in the, not I keep saying situational classes, um, the signature course too. So this is a question on pregnancy domain one. What is gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, and help syndrome? And I said, are there any dietary modifications for these conditions? Pick one or answer all four. So let's go over them. So you want to make sure you know the definition of these so that you know the difference of them. So the first one is just gestational hypertension. This is just good old regular high blood pressure. So they say that this is a blood pressure of greater than 140 over 90 after 20 weeks gestation. But you do not have any proteinuria, which is protein in your liver. So this one is just regular hypertension. Not good, right? You want to make sure you manage it, but it's no cause for alarm. After you start with just regular gestational hypertension, it can go up to preeclampsia. So preeclampsia is dangerous. And it's the hallmark here is that it has the protein in the urine. And so this can happen to someone who's previously always had regular blood pressures. And so the concern here is that this high blood pressure can cause damage to other organs. So you need to deliver the infant to solve this. So it's very, very serious. You need to deliver the infant to make sure you're not having damage. So like my sister had her baby three weeks ago, and when she went in for her last visit, they were like, oh my God, your blood pressure is so high. So they induced her because they were like, okay, even though your due date's three days away, like we're going to just induce you because the high blood pressure is so concerning too. But only with preeclampsia, you know, are you actually going to have to deliver first with gestational hypertension? Bad, but you can manage that with dietary, which we'll talk about. Now, after preeclampsia is eclampsia. So this is severe preeclampsia, which is going to have seizures. Again, you have to deliver the infant to solve this. And then the last one we have, which is one we don't really hear that much. You might see it on like a pocket prep or like an eat right prep question or as like an answer choice. But typically not getting questions actually on it is HELP syndrome. So it's H-E-L-L, two L's, P. 
And so this is an acronym. So it's um, hemolysis, right? Cutting of those blood cells, elevated liver enzymes in low platelet count. So it's kind of the acronym is telling you what it is. But this is, again, a severe, severe form of preeclampsia where it's, again, causing you to have that organ damage too. So preeclampsia, eclampsia, it helps in some, you would need to deliver the infant very, very severe. For all of them, besides if you need to deliver the infant, right, which wouldn't be our job as the dietitians, the, what we want to make sure we're doing with all pregnant women is decreasing the risk of preeclampsia by having a healthy, balanced diet. You do want to make sure that they're taking calcium. This is going to help with the blood pressure. Also, vitamin D, if their vitamin D is low. Another thing is to have them have a diet that's rich in magnesium. This is going to help to lower, to lower their blood pressure. You'll see sometimes, too, you'll see sometimes, too, that they'll supplement moms with magnesium if their blood pressure is getting a little bit high. Healthy diet, healthy weight gain, too. So we really, the best we can do is try to prevent so that way, um, so that way we're not getting to this point. But yeah, unfortunately, you're going to have to deliver the infant. Um, you're going to have to deliver the infant sometimes. Okay, the next one I put up was, what are some of the changes that happened in the nutrition facts label in 2017? And I also put up on the Facebook page a PDF of these changes. If you're just listening to the podcast only, just shoot me an email, danajfryernutritionatgmail.com. And let me know you need this handout and I'll send it to you. So when we're thinking about the key changes, you know, that's why it's really kind of helpful to kind of compare the old to the new. So the first thing that you're going to see change is the serving size of several things change. Like, for example, ice cream went from being half a cup to two thirds of a cup. This is to kind of help make it more realistic. Calories also got bigger and they're more bold. In our fat section, we now don't have calories from fat because we know it's more important that the types of the fats. You don't have calories from fat. You'll still see grams and your daily value and then saturated and trans, but you won't see the calories from fat anymore. We also have the added sugar is here under carbohydrates, which is great so people can tell the different types of sugar. We also had a slight switch up in the nutrients that are at the bottom. So we now have vitamin D. We still have calcium. We still have iron, but potassium is also new. So we have vitamin D and potassium added, vitamin A, vitamin C removed. And that was really based on, you know, what people tend to have deficiencies are too. Um, and then the last change too is that the footnote was just slightly um, slightly updated so people have a better understanding of what the percent daily value is. So there's the six changes. And again, don't forget to grab that handout. Um, it's just called details of the key changes on the nutrition facts label for those of you guys on the Facebook page. And if you listen to podcasts only, just shoot me an email and I'm happy to share that document with you too. Okay. Next one, we have a question from Lindsay. She says, this is a question from pocket prep. Uh, Neil's respiratory quotient is measured and as a result of um, 0.85. What is most likely composition of the meal? So the RQ, or respiratory quotient, is one we tend to forget about. 
Um, this is domain one. This goes with indirect calorimetry. And so what the indirect calorimetry does is it's measuring how much oxygen you're breathing in and CO2 you're producing. And it's telling you your exact measured calorie needs, but it also tells you your respiratory quotient, which is telling you, you know, kind of what is your main fuel at the moment. So you want to make sure that you know the respiratory quotient. So a respiratory quotient of one would be saying you're mostly burning carbs. For our ventilated, sedated patients, our concern there is that we're overfeeding them. Then we can be having a respiratory quotient, like this question is asking about, of 0.85. So what we're saying there is with the 0.85, this is mixed. This is ideal. Then after that, we're having 0.82, which is saying um, that we're mostly burning our protein there too. And then we have our 0.7, which is fat. So this one would be would be mixed, which is kind of um, which is kind of going to be ideal too. Okay, next question we have is one from Meredith. She it's saying in creating a cancer screening tool, you want to include signs and symptoms that are early warning signs of cancer, according to the American Cancer Association, which include the acronym CAUTION. And which of the following is not included in the American um, Cancer Society's caution list? And so then they're going about this and kind of giving us a few, a few different options of what one it could be. And remember, we're looking for the one, we're looking for the one that's not. And so this is a great question where we want to remember that a lot of the time they're, the guidelines they're asking us about on the exam, they're not necessarily in the gene inman, which is why it's really, really important to make sure you're doing lots and lots of practice questions. Come on here, do practice questions. You guys know I love pocket prep. Inman too, kind of looking around, because you want to make sure that you're getting comfortable with seeing a variety of questions, because there's never going to be kind of like, you know, like a place that has 100% um, 100% of everything. So don't be afraid to kind of look at a variety, um, a variety of different things. So when we're thinking about the American Cancers Association caution, this is, they're kind of giving you some signs that you could have cancer. So the C, and honestly, I've never used this <laughs> with my patients. So we have C is change in bowel or bladder habits. Right, so if you're having more diarrhea, less diarrhea, constipation, no constipation, you're peeing all the time, you're not peeing at all. A is a sore that won't heal. So this could be like a skin ulcer. It could also be like you're having a mouth ulcer too, just something that's not, not going away. Especially if it's in the mouth, you're definitely concerned about some sort. Um, you're definitely concerned about some sort of um, oral cancer. Then we have U, unusual bleeding or discharge, right? Then T, we have a thickening or lump in the breast or elsewhere. I is indigestion or difficulty in swallowing. O is obvious change in a wart or a mole, especially for melanomas, skin cancer, right? N is nagging cough or hoarseness. 
That can be a sign of esophageal lung cancer. Unexplained anemia is a U. Um, and they're saying that's because, again, so many of them present with anemia. And then S, which is what I see all the time in my clinic, sudden weight loss. And so the question, to go back to Meredith's question, is saying, which of the following is not included in, um, in the caution list? And all of the ones that are the answers are included. And so this is why with a type of question, with a type of question like this, you want to kind of make sure that you're kind of taking a pop out and like looking it up too. Because remember, just because it's a practice question, you see it on Quizlet, you see it on Pocket Prep, you see it on Inman, it doesn't always mean that it's 100% correct. So you're going to learn more kind of looking up, you know, what does this mean and kind of taking the takeaway from it then, you know, being like, wait, the question's wrong. Um, so that's a great one to kind of, you know, use my other favorite tool of Google. So that's the Caution um, American Cancer Association signs too. Okay, one last one for us tonight. Which lact uh, when lactose is malabsorbed in a person with lactose intolerance, it travels intact to where? And everyone always gets confused because they're like, well, it gets, you know, if you're not having lactase, right, that's a problem in the small intestine. Correct. So if the question said, where is it not absorbed? It would be the small, it would be the small intestine. But it's saying, where does it travel intact to? So because it's not absorbed in the small intestine, it travels intact. Um, it travels intact to the colon, um, to the colon there too. So, you know, and another one, too, is more of an open-ended one. Of just what is the Braden scale? I've gotten a few students who are getting questions on this, and they're like, what's the Braden scale? And remember, the Braden scale isn't ranking your pressure injury. It's going to be assessing the risk of the actual pressure injury. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.